The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501c3 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of new media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Good morning. Welcome to Spirit Mornings with Bruce McGregor and... Chris McGregor. And today, Chris, one of our favorite guests has returned. Yes, We're delighted to have in studio with us Sister Joan Miller. Sister, good morning and good welcome. Good morning to you. Thank you so much Always a delight me. to see your shiny face here. It's just it's great. Good to, it's good to be here also. Thank you. Oh, and we, we so wanted you here today, Sister, because today is a very special feast day in the church for a saint that many may not be aware of, but we should know her story and her life because it really is one of the most compelling I've ever read. Yes, I agree. St. Josephine Bequita. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, why don't we go ahead and let's talk about why she's so important. And for you, she is kind of represents a kind of special connection to a ministry that you have really dedicated your life to here in Omaha. Yes. Um, Myself, along with Sister Chris Stevenson, um, have worked toward uh, really working with the Catholic population, Catholic Sudanese population here in Omaha, uh, the locus of which is at Immaculate Conception Church on the south side in Omaha. We have about 120 registered Sudanese families, wow. representing 500, over 500 souls. Over 300 of those souls are children. So, um, and we work with a three-prong program. We have an educational ministry, which has been very successful with these children. We have a social services ministry, which works on just stabilizing families and providing some relief, and um, especially during the winter months, um, that's very necessary. And then we have, um, then there's the pastoral arm of the program, which is uh, registering, making sure our families are registered, a process that takes a long time because people come without records from the Sudan. Mm, So records need to be reconstructed, that kind of thing. So it's um, St. Josephine Bikita, for me, um, has almost become a breath. Mm. She really enlivens our ministry, and I really believe that um, the, the experience of her power and her presence, especially during the week of St. Paquita. We, I, Sister Chris and I say, it's the week of St. Paquita, expect blessings. And, um, oh, wow. and always during the week of St. Paquita, there are blessings for us. Oh, praise God. I, I, I just have to go back real quickly to what the Sudanese families probably are experiencing here in Omaha compared to the, to the life, especially for the adults who grew right. up in the Sudan, to have to experience not only our culture but our weather. Oh, this I mean, is this is shocking. Be- <laughs> it's so shocking. On Sunday, um, we just opened the office and said, anyone who doesn't have gloves, mittens, and of course... Uh, and especially the Sudanese who aren't made, their bodies aren't made for winter, um, it's really important to have a feast. Mm-hmm. And when we celebrate this feast, it is truly a feast. I'm, uh, I'm recalled of a statement Oprah Winfrey just recently made uh, because she has given so much to the Saf- uh, South African communities by mm-hmm. building an academy and wants to continue to give. And she said what has really s- stung her is that when she speaks to teenage or children teenage kids or children even in this country about what they would like they they always say well i would like an ipod or uh, a, right. a, a video game unit or something 
uh, rather expensive, a, a designer cell phone. When she has spoken to the kids in Africa, they would like a uniform for school. Mm-hmm. They would like to be able to have pencils and pens to be able to write with. I mean, those things are so precious. I think um, we work with St. Leo's Church um, for our Christmas program. St. Leo's has um, St. Leo's parishioners are our lifeline. You know, for many things, they do a backpack program with us for going back to school and also for Christmas. And then they do Christmas presents. Mm -hmm. And they've often commented on that, too. You know, we're not asking for iPods. We're not asking for skateboards. We're not asking for big things. Um, Although one year we begged. We were so short of beds for children. We begged, Mm -hmm. can you give us some beds? But we're asking for for shoes, basically. Mm -hmm. Shoes and coats and scarves and mittens. And our kids are thrilled uh, with these kind of gifts. Just thrilled. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, we're visiting this morning with Sister Joan Miller here on this, the feast day of St. Josephine Bakita. As she, as Sister Joan Miller, I'm going to talk about you in the third person. Bruce, she's one of my favorite storytellers of all time. Well, don't tell her, but... She had me so enthralled with yeah. the life of St. Clair. She, uh, she, <laughs> oh, well, St. Clair yeah. is my love, you know, too. <laughs> she is for me, too. So. Yes. Uh, and we just so would like to get to know this saint and have the listeners, because just from what I've read, I've just, I, my draw just drops open at this woman's yes, life. Yes, um, Josephine Bakita was born in the southern Sudanese district of Darfur in Africa, and of course where um, Darfur has been so in the news mm-hmm. um, as a region that um, of, of real need and real anxiety. Um Unfortunately, most of the Catholic Sudanese who are here, I mean, they're not from Darfur, they're from southern Sudan, and unfortunately, southern Sudan hasn't had the same press. Southern Sudan has virtually been blacked out from the world for about 50 years. Mm. And the kind of stories and the kind of hardship we hear from our Sudanese parishioners at Immaculate Conception Church is... um, is really as horrific as what we will hear in the story of St. Paquita. So we're not dealing about the past when we look at Paquita's life. We are definitely dealing still, unfortunately and sadly, mm-hmm. um, with the present. Oh, that, that's okay. Oh. At about um, the age of six or seven, she was kidnapped by Arab uh, slave traders as a child. So she was a child slave. There are still child slaves uh, kidnapped by uh, Arab slave traders, and they are all over the Middle East, um, working as domestics, working in hard labor, um, and living the life of slaves. So she was basically one of these child slaves, and during the course of about eight years was sold and resold five times. Oh, my goodness. Mm. Um, And in that... In the trauma of all that, you know, you can imagine a seven or eight year old girl um, going through this horror, horror, you know, being ripped away from her family um, and then going through just the brutality of a slave market and that kind. She forgot her name, Hmm. but she seemed to be, um, you know, to get herself out of trouble a number of times. And so uh, the Arabs called her Bakita, which basically means lucky one. Mm-hmm. So her Arabic name um, became Bakita, and then later on, after she's baptized, she took the name Josephine. So she's known as Josephine Bakita. Mm-hmm. Um, 
during her captivity, uh, once she was be- uh, she was they beat her so terribly she was actually on her straw mat for a month. She just simply couldn't move. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how badly, how terribly badly she was beaten. Mm-hmm. The brutality I think the needs to be emphasized. It's just um, it, and probably the worst thing. Her fourth owner, who was a Turkish army officer. Um, along with his other slaves, so this wasn't unique to Bikita, um, had this idea of t- tattooing his slaves. Um, and what he would do is, is he'd have his women slaves draw designs on his slaves and then take razor blades and cut out those designs in their flesh. I mean, this mm. is just a terrible thing. Oh, my goodness. Um, and then he would take, they would take a dish of, they'd have white flour and salt, and they'd put that, that flour and salt mixture in the wounds, and what that, what that does is it promotes scarring. Oh. So Bikita herself had 114 of these razor scars. Mm. Um, inflicted on, uh, you know, on her chest and um, on her on her stomach, basically. Mm. Wow. So, and 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 these and her arms, and in all, these were about sixty some patterns that mm. were tattooed. That basically, basically said, no matter what slave market she would appear in next, because of course these people appear basically naked in these slave markets. Uh, she would always be identified as having belonged. To this particular um, particular man, it's just so inhumane. I mean, it's just treating another human being as property to 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 mark. To I know that seem. I know that I I'm. This has occurred throughout human history, yes. but to hear this particular story um, and to make it so personal, it just it's so horrific. I think what Bikita. Um, wh- how she calls me is is you know this is a story that is just so incredibly just sad humanly sad that she just calls for a, a comp- for compassion mm-hmm. and she calls for compassion in the world you know um, and I get weepy on this a little bit because even in the stories we hear from our own Sudanese families the torture people have endured. Um, the faith they have, they proclaim, you know, um, that they endure this torture. Many of them endure this torture simply because they're Christians. We had one man who kept saying um, he was in beaten and in prison for a month. And he just kept saying, he said nothing, but I am a Christian. I am a Christian for a month mm-hmm. until finally they let him go. Um, they starved him. He still, we have a lot of Sudanese Adults with terrible men, with terrible gastrointestinal problems, and it's because um, they water with, was withdrawn from this one man. Said what, he had no water for a week. Can mm. you imagine this? No. Mm. This terrible suffering of that, and just no food, just starved. You know, um, with the hope of getting a story out that you know that they can use as a pretext for further torture or death. Mm-hmm. Um, so people cling for life to their Christian faith. So, you know, in looking at the story of Bikita, um, this is, of course, Bikita at this point isn't a Christian. She basically is a little girl who grew up with, you know, not even grown up, but she comes from a village who's practicing African religion. 
But just her humanity, I think, calls out to us in this story. Um, finally, she's purchased by the Italian consul um, in Khartoum. Khartoum is the capital of Sudan. And he's, uh, he's an Italian, Callisto Lignani. Um, and he basically um, treats her very kindly and, it seems, plans to free her. But his wife intervenes because there is another wife and uh, who has who's pregnant is having a little girl, ends up having a little girl, and she needs a nanny. And so um, what ends up happening is Lignani moves back to Italy, and Bikita then ends up staying with this particular family, this second family. Mm -hmm. Um, Eventually, this second family um, goes back to Italy, and they leave her in the custody of the Canosian sisters in Venice. Now, these sisters, and there's also priests of this order, um, end up sending missionaries to Sudan. And most of our Sudanese families, if they've had any Catholic education at all, it has been through these priests um, mm-hmm. who have really been tenacious in staying in very difficult places in Sudan. Oh, God bless them. All. God bless them is right. You know, um, keeping churches open and just just staying, you know. Um, now, they can't get into villages most of the time, but they can, you know, they're keeping these cathedrals open and um, it, it just have done wonderful work. The Sudanese really um, have great respect and reverence um, for the Canisians. Um, so they drop her off at the Canisian Sisters, and this is the first time she starts her education at the age of, I think, about 26. Wow. So, um, and it's interesting. So now we get to education. Um, when the Sudanese come to America, they expect that if they don't know, know English and if they've had no education because they were in villages or whatever, that they would be in kindergarten. This is their expectation. Mm-hmm. And they really don't care how old they are when they sit with the five-year-olds. Wow. Hmm. It's just if they need to be at that level, they expect to be at that level. So I have one delightful little story, um, a guy named Quat who's in our group. And uh, Quat came, and he desperately wanted to learn English. And he was about maybe 25. And we were running our July summer school. And his little niece, Victoria, who's just a sweetheart, was in preschool, four-year-old preschool. And she was in, we have a preschool program, and we have a kindergarten program. So she was in our summer school. And he insisted on coming to school and sitting with Victoria, which, of course, in our system is not appropriate, right? Right. So um, we did have an ESL classroom, and we put Quat, even though he was way beyond school age, we put him in that ESL classroom just because he insisted that he would need to get on the bus and, you know, and... To go to school. To Mm -hmm. go to school, to be part of that. So in, in this culture, that kind of thing is very acceptable. Um, it's very hard for our Sudanese children when they're placed at higher levels and can't learn. Mm-hmm. Very, very frustrating. Yeah. Um, so much of the educational arm of, of Project Welcome is really to, um, to identify where there are learning problems among our children. Now, in the Catholic schools, um, it, we work with All Saints Catholic School on the south side. We have about 64 children who mm-hmm. attend All Saints all Saints, uh, the principal there, Marlon Berkey, a wonderful man. 
um, has really been uh, responsive to programs that we've worked between Project Welcome and All Saints. And these uh, projects, like for instance, right now we have the summer school program and we also have an ESL program that we run during the year. Um, And it's expensive, but it's the only way our children are able to really learn enough to be able to compete and finish high school. So um, (laughs) I remember beginning the year I needed $19,000 to do the program. And that someone gave me six thousand dollars, and I needed nineteen. And I just said, "It's the whenever we have a project, and it's absolutely the right thing to do for children, we just do it." Um, so I still don't have quite nineteen thousand dollars, but um, we'll get through the year, and we'll just do it, you know, because mm-hmm. it's the right thing to do. And when we see how these children are improving and growing, mm-hmm. um, and usually within a year, we can kick them out of this program, and they're in the regular classroom. Uh, so you still do you still need thirteen thousand dollars? Yes. Yeah. Anybody yes, out there? We do. Nope. <laughs> we do. And then we have next year's program. You sure. know. So mm-hmm. um, and these basically what this program is, I see it as if our children. We know if our children do not get through high school, they're extremely disadvantaged. They're not only black; they're African. Right. Mm-hmm. So they are at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of the pecking order in. In poverty, they're at the very bottom. Um, so we know what happens with high school dropouts and where they end up. With um, Sudanese kids who don't get through high school, they are either dead or in jail. Mm-hmm. So literally, when we're looking at this particular program, we are li- we know that we are literally saving the lives of these children, and they're beautiful children. Mm-hmm. They're just children who need help, and they need help now. They don't need help in five years. It's too late. Once they get to a certain age, if they get past sixth grade, it's really tough. We need to get them between the fourth and fifth and sixth grade. If they're in the seventh and eighth grade, it's really hard because it's just so discouraging Mm -hmm. doing first grade and second grade work, you know, when you're in seventh and eighth grade. Well, this is the week of St. Paquita, so maybe there is a way someone out there or a group of people or a group can take this project under its arm or under its wing and mm-hmm. and help guide it. To, yeah, really be the patron saint of our ESL program at All Saints. It's, it's a really good program, um, and it's a program that we need to continue, not indefinitely, but for a few more years until we really, we watch this, the children who register at ICC in the church and we look for those children, particularly, we have some girls in the program, but the, pe- the kids who are really at risk are some of our boys are severely at risk, severely at risk, um, if we don't catch them between the fourth and fifth year time. The interesting thing, when we look at St. Paquita's life, um, her, her love for education and her wanting to be, education, be, to be educated was... Um, was such a desire for her. And we find the same thing with our children. Our mm-hmm. children are not kids who want to blow off their education. I mean, they are ready to eat education. They have been waiting in refugee camps for years and years and years mm-hmm. with the dream of going to school. Mm-hmm. And so when they have this dream and this energy, we don't want to disappoint them at that point. We want to sure. use this energy and this drive um, to help them learn as much as possible, as fast as possible, so that they can compete mm-hmm. and not be basically a drain on society. We want them to be productive citizens. And since they are going to be citizens, 
because they're here legally and they're moving through the appropriate legal processes through our legal clinic, um, we're going to be keeping them for a long time. Mm -hmm. So this is the moment. It's cheaper to make the investment now than, you know, if we have to support them in jail. I mean, that's just money down the drain. So St. Paquita at this point is being educated. By the Canadian sisters. And then um, the family comes back to her and she protests saying she wants to stay at the school. She wants to stay with the sisters. And she says she wants to be a sister. And the family tries to assert its rights over her, saying that Bikita is a slave, is their slave. And at that point, the sisters intervene and go to the Italian authorities. Go sisters. Go sisters. <laughs> God, you know, when it comes to the poor, um, the sis, you know, sisters in every age yep. just have a knack at so knowing, true. you know, this isn't okay for children. Mm-hmm. I mean, we started Project Welcome because, not because, I certainly, I'm a, I'm a professor at Creighton, I don't need a project, you right. know, I have a job. Um, not because we needed a project, not because, you know, we wanted to go all over and get a reputation. It was because this is the right thing to do for children, Yeah, you know, and I think Amen. it's carrying that legacy that Catholic sisters have always had. We, whatever the politics, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever, we need to make decisions that are right for children. We need to be able to stand up for the children who, for children who can't speak for themselves, or if they do speak, no one listens. Mm-hmm. We need to listen to them. So anyway, the sisters stood up for her, and um, basically the Italian government. I'm sure the sisters knew a few people in power. Mm-hmm. The Italian government ruled against this family and said that um, slavery slavery isn't basically recognized by the Italian government. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you, yeah. Italy. And Bikita was free, and she first had to be baptized. She wasn't a Christian. So she became baptized, and then eventually, slowly, uh, the sisters catechized her um, in a way that she could be catechized. And the Canadian sisters did a really wonderful job with Bikita. We don't have in Bikita any kind of high or mystical spirituality. Mm-hmm. It, Bikita's spirituality is very, very simple, basic, and I find in her spirituality a freedom and a, a, a Christian faith that, that just blows me away. Um, And probably I find that because I experience that every single Sunday when we do catechesis or when I listen to souls. She, when we do catechesis for baptism, for instance, with our Sudanese families, we explain that baptism, in baptism, you are an adopted son and daughter of God. Basically, you are adopted into the family of God through Jesus you are adopted into this family. And because of this, we love God because, you know, God is our father and mother. And we love Jesus because Jesus has shown us the way. And we love each other because when you're in a family, of course you love and care for each other. Otherwise, there's no family. So it's a very, very simple message focused on this baptism font. When we have baptisms, people dress to the nines. I mean, they wear their very best clothes. Um, we have, um, I don't know if I can do this on radio or if it'll blow your thing, but we have this kind of, you know, yeah. this kind of 
jubilant. Hey, if um, you can do it, you yeah. know yeah. it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Sounded happens, jubilant to me. Uh, it starts at the very beginning, you know, Father says, you know, let us approach the altar of God, and all the women go, you know, every, and the music starts, and the drums go, and it's just a beautiful celebration. And, mm-hmm. and all the way through the baptism, um, one of the other things is, you know, when we say, do you reject Satan? You know, we teach we teach our Sudanese families, all of this is new. Everything is new. So we say, do you reject anything evil that could happen to this child? Anything bad? And, and their amen is, amen. I mean, if anything, they came to this country to protect and love their children, to have a safe place for these children. So do we reject Satan? Amen. All right. There we go. So it's a, it's this if kind every of, parent could have that kind of enthusiasm. Oh, when mm-hmm. it, you know, it's questions. so, it's so, um, we're at the very root of what it means to be a human being and what it means to survive. I, you know, we were talking about that a little bit off mic, you know, for St. Paquita, it, she, her charism, when you look at the different saints there, is a hospitality or of wisdom or something like that. But, boy, she had a charism of survival. Yes, yes. And our, our families do, too, when we listen to their stories. Um, for instance, um, you know, we are doing this gospel, loving one another, and that the, the importance of love, and that this is the Christian message. And Father Lynn said, you know, so we, he read this little story, and then he said, now, what does this story say? What is, what is necessary for us to be a Christian? And one man said, believing in Jesus. And it was such a disconnect from the story, you know? Mm-hmm. And so... Father Lentz, he wanted love, of course, because that was the story and the point, you know. Sure. <laughs> and I thought, too, well, he gave a wrong answer, what do you, you know. But, the, but we have learned, no, 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 there's no wrong answer. You listen to where did this come from? Where did this answer come from? Um, and there we had the story of this man who suffered so horribly and was saved because he simply said, I believe in Jesus. I believe in mm-hmm. Jesus. I believe in Jesus. So for him, what is the one thing necessary I believe in Jesus. Mm. And when we look at St. Bikita, you know, um, at the end of her life, she would bap- she would kiss the baptism font when she would go to, and she'd think, here I became God's daughter. You know, this baptism font, this belief in Jesus, this coming to be a son and daughter of God, this awe of the God of creation, this is very definitely uh, a kind of spirituality that is distinctly um, kind, it is really distinctly Sudanese. It's coming from, it's coming from their persecution. It's coming from their sufferings, and it's it's taking all that suffering and moving it into Christian gentleness. Um, I think it's as profound um, as a Fatima, or as some of the later mystics we have and we talk about and we we appreciate their vision and their guidance and their understanding of the Christian faith. I think this faith is is simple even though it's so very very simple and unlettered it is it is that profound. It 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 just it really moves me. Every time I go to church and listen to the souls of these people. I'm a theologian, have a PhD in theology. I learned from them. I learned what it means to be a Christian. The thing that, and this will sound, I hope, not overly dramatic, but as you were speaking, I, 
you look at this this young girl, this little girl, what five years old, literally aborted from her family. Yes. So much so that she can't even remember her name, her mm-hmm. identity that was given to her by that family, just ripped from that, treated so cruelly that when we baptize, we truly believe we become a God's children. We become that divine filiation that we right. have, right. that we are that we are his children and for her to kiss that font that birth, that womb that she was born into the finally back into a family you and know, it's even just, more oh. profound for Bikita because it's not only like her family gave her a name she didn't even remember her tribal name wow. which is which is her blood identity mm-hmm. you know so and the Sudanese have many, many, many names. And sometimes they, they're switching names all over, and we think, well, what are they doing and whatever. Well, all of these, you know, these are all tribal names. In other words, you're not so much, um, you're not so much thought of, you don't think of yourself so much individually as you do the, uh, the group identity is your primary identity. Mm-hmm. We have such a hard time with confession because confession is built on this kind of, the way we do confession here is kind of built on this Irish individual kind of identity, mm-hmm. the individual right. soul. In, in the Sudan, and even for our children, this is such a for. I mean, we, we just struggle so deeply. We're going through it right now with our kids, you know, and we go, I take each one of them, and I, we actually have to work out a little card, you know, so that the kids don't completely lose everything that they were taught when they go to see Father, because... This idea of being an individual is so foreign to them. Mm-hmm. Here she loses her whole group identity. So the trauma, um, the trauma she experienced must have been massive. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of her life, you know, she's still, you know, on her deathbed, she still was, you know, um, she's screaming out, please loosen the chains, they're so heavy. She's still reliving. Mm. You know, so she lived as a captive, as a suffering soul in this way her entire life. And her salvation, her joy, was to be a Christian and then to be the simple sister. And, and what she basically did was open the door. Mm-hmm. They heard she was the porter. She was the doorkeeper. She was the doorkeeper, and people just loved her. How many saints do we have that were just doorkeepers? A number. Yeah, I just <laughs> think, I think of, of Solanus bless, Casey, one yeah, yeah. you know, good Franciscan. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and yeah. I mean, it just those people the who... The humblest of the humble. Who was the, the doorkeeper that influenced Peter Claver? I mean, I, I can't, God forgive me, I can't remember his name, but there are just those people who are just living out, not on, proselytizing out on a street corner, but just bearing up with life and witnessing that profound faith. Right. Just mean, being and gentle and compassionate to people. Yeah. And how many of those people are out there right now? Right. They're just waiting for for us to bear witness. I mean, we look back. We, we, we've been talking earlier this week about abolitionist uh, uh, William Wilberforce, who finally stood up in England back in the 18th century and said, enough, we've got it. This is not what it is to be Christian to allow this to occur. And we look back and we say, yes, that's right. How How could we have allowed slavery back then? And here we are today. What are we missing that's occurring right now? And we're not doing anything about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's something that what, what have we turned a blind eye to because it affects our, our economy right. or it does something. Right. I mean, what are mm-hmm. we turning away from 
um, while others are suffering. Yes. Yeah. That's a tough one. I think, you know, when we look at um, the problem of Sudan, and when we started Project Welcome, people would come and say, oh, you know, we have this need at home. I have to send Rani. Would you please help? Can we build a school in Sudan? Can we do this? And um, I remember going to Father Taphorn and saying, you know, what do you think about trying to raise money to send them to Africa to do these various projects? And he said, no. We really can't do that. We have to take care of the people because we have so many Sudanese Catholics here, mm-hmm. so many. Mm-hmm. Right. And we need, um, that's what we need to do. And actually that was very, although the other tore at my heart um, because the needs are so desperate, mm-hmm. um, we did what we were told and it ended up being a very good thing because in the end, First of all, our children are growing and learning, and they're they're going to be they're going to be okay if we continue to have the support from the Omaha community to take care of our children and to really um, to support our children at this critical moment. Um, they'll be okay. Um, but as our families are okay, they are sending money, twenty dollars, fifty dollars. They know how to deal with the corruption. The corruption in Sudan is just, and it's on every single level. It's That's on right. every level. Right. Staggering. It's in. It's in the church. It's in. Um, you know, we don't want to say that, but it's on every level because these tribal affiliations are so strong mm-hmm. that it can't be. That's right. Um, so, in a sense. Our families know how to get money where it really where the need is desperate. They know how to wire money. They know who to wire it to. They know how to do this. They're sophisticated in their system. Mm-hmm. We are not. So mm-hmm. in the end, by supporting our families, Africa is actually being taken care of too, right. which is has been the immigrant way. You know, um, yeah. that's right. Uh, we, they say what, you know, the money going to uh, down south with the Spanish is just incredible, you know, taking care of family members in that direction. Um, it, certainly what the money our Sudanese families have isn't isn't that same kind of, I mean, that's not that same kind of volume of money, but it is investment that's making a difference in Sudan. Um, so, so this mix about, you know, acting locally is acting internationally is that you know we're kind of living it and seeing um really seeing progress on both uh, both sides and it makes it very concrete if someone would like and they hear what's happening in sudan a very concrete way of helping that is helping locally yes Yes. step up and help locally and i think it's the most effective way Mm -hmm. because um there is just from hearing stories, from seeing how thing, you know how things have moved, how different efforts have worked, mm-hmm. I think this is the most effective way of doing something in Sudan is by right. acting locally to support our refugees right. here. And what are your needs, sister? Um, right now, well, we have a, a number of needs. One is a small need, really. During our summer school, we use a particular we use particular textbooks that um, we've developed a curriculum for our children to get them quickly from A to Z. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, because our kids will come, they're maybe 10, 11, 12, 
and they have had no education at all. They come from villages or from camps, and they don't even know how to count or anything. They don't know English. And so we need, um, we've developed a way um, to take the skills that they have and to develop English skills using their skills that they've already acquired. So, but we need particular series and particular books in order to do that. And we have been working with Barnes and Nobles in town here, who gives uh, give us great rates on these particular texts that we use. Mm-hmm. Um, but at this point, I I only and we also use these books for our ESL program that we run through All Saints School. Mm-hmm. At this point, I have like about twelve dollars and eighty two cents left. That is not enough. <laughs> it no. is not going to get me through even the rest of this year for yeah. ESL, much less and the summer school. Our needs are massive, so. You know, any gift card from Barnes and Nobles, you know, I would I promise a kiss to anybody who brings me <laughs> gift cards oh, from yeah. Barnes and Nobles. I just really need this because we need yeah. um we need these books for our children. Secondly, we need um we need funds for our social service for Sister Chris. Mm-hmm. Um we need heat we're gonna need heat aid uh next month. We're definitely gonna need heat aid and mm-hmm. our heat aid fund is basically we we petitioned for heat aid um, over Christmas and really didn't get a whole lot of response. I think the weather was nice and people didn't think we need this. Yeah. But really, with the bills coming up, we really need funding to be able to um, to work with some of our families regarding heat aid, which is a very complicated thing. Sister Chris looks at... Uh, Sister Chris is a very savvy social worker. Mm-hmm. Um, it, she looks at what's available through the state, which is hardly anything for families. Which is stunning. Yeah. When we're the Salvation the, Army going on gives nothing to families. The MUD, Heat Aid, all this, n- these programs give nothing to families, which is why we have so many fires with children lighting candles yeah. and that kind of thing trying to keep warm. Yeah. Nothing is going to families. The money that's given to in our Heat Aid all of it, 100%, goes directly to our families, directly wow. to Sudanese families. And then legal fees. We petition the government anytime we have a situation of poverty, which is almost all our families. We've only had one that hasn't completely um, fallen under the government guidelines for poverty for sure. full 100% oh, uh, that's forgiveness. That's tragic. So legal fees, but we, they still have to pay for fingerprinting, which is $75 a pop. And for these government physicals, which could be a whole nother radio program, these government physicals, that they have to have from certain providers, um, and not all of these providers are real ethical. So Project Mm -hmm. Welcome has negotiated fixed rates with some of these doctors, um, but we still have to pay these fixed rates. And then finally, I need need to pay the teachers that we have for the ESL. We, We hire... Um, retired teachers who come in various hours to work with our kids, and it's a great program. These t- these teachers are cream of the crop. Mm-hmm. Um, all we have three of them, three teachers that we have uh, do, do, working our ESL program. They're just superb. But um, I need to pay them until the end of the year to keep this program running. Yeah. So um, so these are the three, but and that would be under our education programs. So the Barnes & Noble's gift certificates and money for the ESL program would be under our education program. And then the heat aid fund and the legal fees would be under our social services program. Mm-hmm. Help. Yeah. I mean, yes. help. Yeah. Uh, it, it just, this is, uh, it, it's, it's stunning to me the hoops you've had to jump through just to be able to get what you 
to do what you're doing right now? We started off with absolutely, I started, we still don't have a budget from anyone. Mm. We have to raise all of our, um, all of our funds are, are raised through donations and through like these small grants. We don't do government grants because we don't have the infrastructure. Once you have the infrastructure to do government grants, most of your money goes to supporting that infrastructure. Right. Mm-hmm. And because we have in, basically what we have is an intensive care operation. In other words, these refugees come in and my God, they need Absolutely everything immediately. This is an intensive care work. So we have to have resources. We have to focus our resources really on these families themselves. Not, you know, if Project Welcome is gone in three years, I will just have a normal life again. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'll be able to work 12 hours a day instead of 14, 15, 16. So, you know what the longevity of this thing isn't our isn't our concern what we need at this point is we need resources right now to go into these children to support these children and these families and uh, how do they get in touch with you sister um they can they can contact our office if there are questions the office number is 505-7616 okay. and if they want to send us gift cards or um or a check um, the address would be Project Welcome, and then please put attention, Sister Joan Miller, and Miller is spelled M-U-E-L-L-E-R. I'm from Wisconsin, Mueller, mm-hmm. you know? Yes. <laughs> so it's Miller, um, M-U-E-L-L-E-R, and the address is 4801 California Street, number two, and without the number two, the post office doesn't want to deliver it. So 4801 California Street, number 2, Omaha, Nebraska, and the zip code is 68132. And we'll have all the information here at the radio station. Yes, so if we you will. want to call here, uh, we can make sure we get it there. But this is, uh, this is the time of year. A lot of people are planning, what are we going to do for Lent? I know it's a, about a week or so away, but this is the type of thing that for anybody that can raise funds in parishes, especially yes. the big parishes out west, but everything from religious ed groups are planning, what can we do, what kind of project. So many people look outside the city at a lot of the other relief organizations to, to be able to submit funds to. And that's a, that's a good thing. But boy, what about the people in your backyard? Yeah, we really, What about the people right here <laughs> that need help? On the south side, the need... The need from all quarters on the south side is just dire. It's just dire. It's it's to the point um, where it's really dire. And and because there's so many children involved, um, we just have to do something. Yes. Yeah, we have a, a lot of boxes that get sent home at, for people to put coins in during Lent. Yes. You know, wow, couldn't we be directing that towards people right here in our own community? Think about it, pray on it, mm-hmm. and see what you can do. And there are big groups. There are men's groups and ladies' guilds and mm-hmm. Knights of Columbus. And there are a lot of different organizations that are making their plans and trying to decide what to do. You've heard of what these people have had to go through and this tremendous, tremendous need. I I just can't. At St. Paquita. So yeah. week, yes, uh, you know, Saint Paquita. <laughs> you know, we just Sister Chris and I just celebrate this week because um, it, it's a week we it's a week we just kind of take a break from worrying because yeah. Saint Paquita is complete. I mean, the blessings of Saint Paquita are just. Uh, we began this week with 
a van, a completely van load full. We couldn't even fit everything in the van of household things from St. Wenceslas. Mm. This is the beginning of the week, you know. So um, St. Paquita is is always, I mean, we just feel it's palpable almost, her presence and her love for these refugees. Great intercessor. I'm wondering, um, there's this beautiful prayer of St. Paquita. Please. Can can we close? Yeah, let's close with that. You bet. This is from a prayer from St. Paquita. She says, and again, her simplicity and the beauty and the earthiness of her faith. She says, seeing the sun, the moon, and the stars, I said to myself, who could be the master of these beautiful things? And I felt a great desire to see God, to know God, and to pay God homage. Amen. 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 Sister, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you. It's it. always good to be oh. here. Oh, it's great to be here. We have a good time. <laughs> you do. You take my breath away every Thanks. time you're here. <laughs> sister Joan Mueller, everyone, thank you so much. We appreciate it. God bless, sister. Thank you so much. This is Chris McGregor. The work of discerning hearts could not continue without your prayers and support. Please consider making a tax-deductible gift. Click Donate at either DiscerningHearts.com or inside the Discerning Hearts free app. Your generous support will allow us to continue our podcast for those on the discerning journey. Thank you and God bless from all of us at Discerning Hearts.